You're listening to Consilience, a podcast from The Scientist magazine. This month, we're bringing you stories about music and the brain. I'm Ben Henry. Our first story is about why we like the music that we like. To help me untangle the research on this topic, I'm talking with Diana Kwan, a staff writer for The Scientist magazine. Diana, thanks for talking with me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a piece in the March issue of The Scientist called Musical Tastes, Nature or Nurture. That story starts in the late 1990s with a study by two Harvard psychologists, Marcel Zettner and Jerome Kagan, who wanted to know whether four-month-old infants preferred consonant musical chords over dissonant ones. From my understanding, it's the first time somebody actually sat down and said, okay, let's take some babies and see what type of music they like or if they have a type of music that they like. What they would do is sit a baby down in front of a speaker. They played each kid two versions of a melody. One version contained consonant chords, a combination of notes that just sound nice together. The other version had slightly different chords that sound a little bit grating dissonant chords. Zentner and Kagan found that these very young children didn't appear to like the dissonant music. They were fidgety, they wouldn't look right at the speaker, they would cry. But when the consonant music played, they were much more likely to just sit contentedly and listen. And I mean, since then, researchers have done a bunch of other studies on kids who are even younger and even in animals like chimps and baby chickens and have found similar things. So there's just been like increasing evidence building that maybe there's some sort of preference at an early age. We think of our musical preferences as being highly personal and subjective, but maybe some part of it is actually biologically hardwired in us. Diana spoke to Josh McDermott, who studies this idea at MIT. Here's a piece of that interview. He's explaining another reason why we might have an ingrained preference for certain intervals, that is, combinations of notes. I think it comes down to the fact that the, the particular intervals that are used in Western music and arguably in music cross-culturally are, are not random. The intervals that are, are most common or, or most important in Western music um, are typically defined by, by ratios between the pitches that are simple integer ratios, or, or approximately so. So they're not random, and so that's, that seems to indicate, well, there's got to be some force that's responsible for the fact that they're not random. And so one possible force is the fact that there's sort of an intrinsic, like, aesthetic difference between different musical intervals, and so people end up using the ones that are more pleasing. The problem with this argument, that there's something inherently nice about certain combinations of notes, is that almost all of the studies supporting this idea took place in Western cultures, where we share a musical heritage. From classical music hundreds of years ago to radio hits today, we rely heavily on consonant chords and avoid dissonant ones. So maybe we're just biased, and the infants in those studies absorbed just enough Western music to show that bias. To get around that problem, McDermott joined a group of anthropologists and other scientists studying a group of people who don't listen to Western music, or for that matter, any music other than their own. The Chimane live in a vast, remote swath of the Bolivian Amazon. They're mostly isolated from surrounding cultures. McDermott and his colleagues wanted to know if they had the same aversion to dissonance that we do, 
Here's McDermott again. The first part of, of the trip that summer, we did a bunch of recording sessions with the Chimani musicians. So that was that was pretty fun and, and, and quite interesting. So we set up a little recording studio, I mean, as best we could um, in this, this one building in this town. And then sort of a few weeks before we arrived, we arranged for there to be a big announcement broadcast that we were looking for musicians. They just started showing up. You know, some of, some of them had like traveled for days, basically to like come and, and like and hang out and play music. The music that Chimane played for them sounded fabulously unlike anything you would hear on the radio in the West. So McDermott's team had this unique opportunity to study people whose musical experience was completely different from those of us raised in Europe or North America. Diana can explain the experiments they did. What they would do is kind of like what um, the the researchers did back in the 90s was they would play uh, clips of music. And um, I mean, because they were adults, they were able to just ask them um, whether they preferred uh, one piece of music to another. Um, before that, another important thing that they needed to do was to figure out whether um, this group of people could actually tell the difference between these two different types of tones. McDermott and his colleagues found that the Chimane were perfectly able to tell the difference between consonant and dissonant sounds. But when they were asked to rate those clips of music on a scale according to how much they enjoyed it, they gave consonant and dissonant music the same ratings. Unlike Westerners, the Chimane didn't have an ingrained distaste for dissonance. But the story is complicated, McDermott says. One cautionary note I would provide, right, is like most people, myself included, would sort of shy away from these kind of black and white distinctions between sort of being innate and learned, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, a lot of people would say, well, you know, nothing is completely innate. And in my mind, there's a real vacuum in terms of, you know, having good experiments in, in pretty remote cultures. Even if we're all born with a preference for consonants, the Chimane are evidence that it can be overruled by culture. If there is something truly universal about musical tastes, We haven't found it yet. I never listened to music voluntarily. I hear music everywhere, whether I like it or not. You see, I have this... Strange mixing of the senses called synesthesia. Synesthesia. That's the subject of our next story about music and the brain. This is technology journalist and composer LJ Rich giving a TED Talk in 2014. When I see, touch, or taste things, I hear sound. And when I hear sound, I hear music. My brain generates music. It's really useful when I'm doing classical composing. However... It does mean that in my other day job as a TV reporter for BBC Click, the technology show, it can get a little overwhelming. I get distracted by reality. At this point, Rich walks over to a keyboard on the stage. I'm going to let you into a secret and explain why I'm so distracted. Going around a building or going around a city, I kind of hear this. These are the cars. 
buildings are kind of like this. And the people are kind of like this. There's something else going on here. LJ Rich is not only a synesthete, she also has absolute pitch, meaning she can identify or play any given musical note by ear without any sort of reference. Between these two gifts, her whole world is music. It's so overwhelming that the way that I deal with it is by harmonizing with it. I make noises, I sing along, I probably look a little crazy when I do it, but it turns that noise into music. There's the buildings. Those are the people. It seems like a total coincidence that Rich has both synesthesia and perfect pitch, but it's not. I'm talking with Catherine Offord, who wrote about this in the March issue of The Scientist. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for talking. Thank you very much for having me. So you spoke to LJ Rich about what her world is like and also about the neuroscience behind it. Before we even get into all that, it's just so hard for me to imagine what living inside of her head feels like. Yeah, and I mean, it's something she's aware of as well, right? I mean, she was telling me that it's it's difficult to have conversations with people because you want to use words like delicious or tasty to describe sounds. And to somebody who doesn't have synesthesia, that just sounds like you've made a bit of a slip up. Can you just summarize in general what synesthesia is? Synesthesia is the linking of different senses when you get one stimulus. So for example, you have a taste and that's associated with a sound or you see a word and that's associated with a color. So it's basically kind of crossing over these different sensory inputs. From your reporting, it sounds like there's a lot more going on here. What have you learned? So first of all, I wanted to chat to some people at the Feinstein Institute. They'd been conducting a study a few years ago where they managed to find all these people, hundreds of people with, um, with absolute pitch. And they'd given them a few surveys to find out what other kind of experiences they might be having. And they discovered that around 20% also had synesthesia. 20%. That's not necessarily true of all people with absolute pitch. This was just one study after all. But it's still a huge proportion, considering that synesthesia is relatively rare in the general population. So that kind of led them to look at this overlap between absolute pitch and synesthesia. And that's where LJ Rich comes in. She's part of this overlap. Another team of researchers, led by Psyche Louie of Wesleyan University, used MRI machines to compare the neural activity of people with synesthesia and people with absolute pitch. They were finding, first of all, that the neural activity was kind of unusual um, in both groups. So both had this heightened uh, neural activity in an area known to be involved in processing music, but that in the people with absolute pitch, there was more activity on one side, and in synesthesia, there was more activity on the other side. And so they had this little phrase that they coined in the title of their paper, which was that maybe, you know, these things are just two sides of the same coin. On one side of the coin? the ability to perfectly and consistently identify any musical note just by hearing it. On the other side, a world of bright sounds and loud shapes. The two seem to have nothing to do with each other, but there's a theory out there that all of this has to do with a neurological concept called hyperconnectivity. 
One of the ways that researchers can quantify what the brain is doing is to track the connections between different parts of the brain. A neurological roadmap keeps all of the separate parts connected to each other. But researchers have noticed some people have more roads on their maps than others. When one part of their brain is active, it's more likely to cause some other part of their brain to be active, sometimes parts that would normally be resting. That's hyperconnectivity. The concept shows up in a lot of different types of research. For example, studies have suggested that hyperconnectivity might explain some cases of depression. They've linked it to autism and even schizophrenia. Those brain scans of people with perfect pitch or synesthesia turned up a similar suggestion. Perhaps uh, heightened connectivity is partly leading to these extra modes of perception, like absolute pitch or synesthesia or extreme creativity or things like that. It's still a hypothesis, but maybe studying the brain's connections could help us understand incredible gifts as well as disease. There's another application to this field of research. Although this isn't a disease, I mean, it's not as though absolute pitch or synesthesia can really be thought of as a disease model. It is a really great model for the interaction between genes and the environment, because there is evidence that suggests that things like absolute pitch and synesthesia don't necessarily come about just because of your genetics. So it seems that there are things early in life or during development that can make it more or less likely that someone will develop synesthesia and absolute pitch. And so they think it's a really good model um, to use to kind of study those overlaps. For now, the mind of LJ Rich is mostly a mystery. Before we end the episode, we have one more interesting tidbit about the brain. I heard about this from Bob Grant, a senior editor at The Scientist. Here's our conversation. So you were telling me that you were reporting a story about bats and you sort of inadvertently uncovered some surprising information about birds. Um, So what did you learn? Well, uh, yeah, so I was talking to a guy at Texas A&M named Mike Smotherman who has studied bat song for quite a while and now he's kind of transitioned out of that. So I was kind of just talking with him about, you know, um, research, uh, current research that's kind of uncovering some similarities between the neural substrates that drive bird song and bat song. So there's a couple different instances where, you know, some of the same brain regions give rise to the, the vocalizations, et cetera, et cetera. And what he told me was, um, you know, and he said it in kind of a matter-of-fact way, like, do you know how songbirds uh, regrow a part of their brain during the spring so that they can sing their mating songs, and then that that part kind of dies back um, and then regrows again the next spring when they need to sing again? And I was like, wow, I didn't know that. Out of curiosity, Bob looked into why a bird might lose and then regrow a part of its brain every year. Brains are very energetically expensive things, right? So we, you know, to run a brain, to maintain a brain takes a lot of energy. Like a lot of the energy that human beings, for example, consume goes to the maintenance and the kind of the running of our brains. So yeah, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective in these birds that when when it's when it's essential that they display this behavior, you know, for the furtherance of their own their own species, their own population they devote that energy and they grow that new brain center to, to, to produce these songs. It's interesting in and of itself. Um, but it also kind of, it was one of the first insights into neurogenesis and vertebrates 
that made people think, oh, wait a second, this this old kind of dogma where like you're born with the neurons that you have, especially in the brain, and they don't really, if you lose them, you lose them, you know? Um, so so that that dogma has changed over the past few years to where people realize that neurogenesis is a real thing that happens in vertebrates and mammals and humans even. So there you have it. We shut off the heat when we go on vacation, and some birds lose a part of their brain when they don't need it. That's it for Consilience this month. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Ben Henry, with help from Carrie Grenz, Bob Grant, and Jeff Axt. We'll be back in April. Music